You're listening to the GP Supervisors Australia podcast, Support Your Registrar to Better Manage Patients with Chronic Pain, presented by Dr. Marissa Capetta. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this recording was produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present, future and their families. Welcome everyone. I know this topic has been something that a lot of supervisors over the years have asked about. It's a very challenging area for registrars and indeed established GPs. So it's time really to introduce you to Dr. Marissa Capetta. And Marissa is a specialist GP in Maroubra, having completed her training, her fellowship in 2013. The reason she's come along as a content expert is that she works as a staff specialist in addiction medicine at the Kirkton Road Centre in King's Cross providing care to marginalised groups, including the homeless, people who inject drugs, those living with HIV and sex workers. She's been involved in addiction medicine field since 2010, completing her fellowship in 2019. She's worked in drug and alcohol services, providing inpatient management, outpatient clinics and consultation liaison across Sydney, Howard Springs, Cairns, Aboriginal Medical Services and Headspace. So a fairly wide and varied background the bit I really like of all of that, Marissa, is that you're a GP. And I think that with all that experience in addiction medicine, you were able to give us your take on this incredibly important topic as a primary care doctor, which is so important. So a very warm welcome. Thanks for coming along and look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you, Simon. And I'm also a GP supervisor as well. This is actually quite an important topic and it's often a cause of stress and confusion for registrars. It requires some good communication skills and things that they will be learning as they move along in their training. So I'm looking forward to sharing some insights and approaches with you. I'm going to cover some resources and some other information around rules and regulation, ways that your practice can support the registrar, a little bit of a framework for prescribing and a few scenarios at the end. I just want to say that I'm not going to be going into specific details of the different opioids and their individual mechanisms of action. We're just going to be talking about opioids as a class. So generally with prescribing opioids and SAIDs, there are two types of authorities that are required. One is the authority under the Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme or the PBS. And then you've also got local authorities, which are often issued by the state and territory in which you live. Some of the registrar questions that were submitted shows that there is a lot of confusion for registrars around what the different types of authorities mean, when you need one, how long they last for, and there was quite a lot of questions around that. So I just think we need to all just take a bit of time to understand that you've got your PBS, so your national requirements under the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme where you can get different authorities. So if you're writing an authority for a modified release opioid prescription, then you need to get a special authority for that. We did have some opioid regulatory changes in 2020, which included smaller pack sizes of the immediate release opioids, but those preparations are really just for short-term acute pain. The guidelines are quite clearly saying now that we should really only be considering opioids for acute pain 
active cancer or palliative care. However, we do know that there are patients that are on opioids for what we call non-malignant pain. And for those patients, they do need a review if they're going to be on opioids for longer than 12 months. That's something we'll revisit a little bit later because that review can be by a specialist. So it might be that you have a pain specialist or, for example, a rheumatologist that's involved in the patient's care or it could be a colleague within the practice. So that's something that you can talk to your registrars about doing. And you need to do that to show that there's an ongoing need for opioids, that you've demonstrated that by having a review with someone else. And then New South Wales is an example because that's where I am at the moment. So in New South Wales, you do need a separate state-based authority. And that's similar to most states. If you're prescribing an opioid for a drug-dependent person, you need to get a special separate authority from the state. And also in New South Wales, if you're prescribing methadone or any injectable forms of SAIDs and a couple of other things for more than two months, you also need that authority. So it is important to be familiar with what your local state authority requirements are. How can you in your practice support the registrars with this difficult area? It's really important to have a practice policy. So a practice policy requires a team approach that involves the whole practice. You need to make sure that everyone in the practice understands the policy and that it's applied consistently. So it's common to have policies in the practice around new patients who request opioids or other drugs of dependence, try and limit phone requests for these kinds of medications. Sometimes it's actually a really good idea to say that GP registrars who haven't been working in the practice for a long time or that are still in training aren't able to initiate drugs of dependence without discussing that with their supervisor. So there's certainly quite a lot of practices that have those policies in place and also supporting them around having zero tolerance for violence towards staff, having a way of dealing with the drug-seeking behaviour If you're still using paper prescription pads, I don't know many people that are, but if you are thinking about where they're stored. And as I mentioned, that 12-month review, it's probably helpful for the practice as a whole to have an idea of what the standard is for that 12-month review so that you know that if you're asking a colleague to review someone in that 12-month review, that it's a standardised approach possible signage that you might put up in the practice, it's quite important to set expectations early on. So if the patients know when they walk into your waiting room that painkillers or sleeping pills are not going to be prescribed over the long term, you've already set that expectation Local knowledge, but it's important for you to pass on to the registrar what are the referral pathways in your area, who are the specialists that you like to refer to, who are the physios and the dietitians who you think are quite good, those that might bulk bill on an EPC referral. Not many, I would imagine, but what do your local public services offer? So what is there at the local hospital? Is there a physio clinic? How do you get access to those things? So in New South Wales, we've got health pathways and they tell us how to refer into our local services. But most states should have some kind of similar system. So I might just ask you a couple of very quick questions. Is it advisable to have blank script papers old-fashioned paper scripts. Mm. I'm not sure that there's a whole bunch of value in those, but what's your thoughts on that? 
Yeah. So I think I've got some blank prescription pads, but they're usually for when I'm off site and I don't have access to a computer. So if you feel that you're ever in that position, then it is of value to have them, but you need to just be aware of where they're stored. I'd like you to really take note of my first and most favourite resource when managing chronic pain. It's the ACI, which is the Agency for Clinical Innovation. They've got a pain management network who've come across with some great resources. They call it the Quick Steps Program for Managing Chronic Pain. You have access to pretty much all of the tools that I'm going to be speaking about for the rest of the talk. So they have sections on pain management scales, pain diaries, lots of patient handouts, opioid contracts, examples of weaning protocols. So it's very, very useful. The quick steps are laid out. So as you work from one step to the next, you get separate videos and explanations and relevant resources provided. At the end, it also includes GP management plan templates and stuff, if that's something that you might find useful. So I think when you're starting to talk about with your registrar around chronic pain and SA prescribing, it's really important to think about who is the patient, who is the patient that we're talking about, because it'll make quite a difference in some cases. If it's a new patient, to me, that's an immediate red flag. If someone's coming in for the first time, specifically if they're requesting opioids, that's where your practice policy comes in. And make sure that the registrar knows how to confirm all the information. So we have seen people walking around with old discharge summaries where they were discharged with opioids, people with other different past history items that really need to be confirmed quite well before we make a decision about ongoing prescribing. Is the patient post-operative? Are they one week post-operative or has it been six months post-operative? If it's a patient of one of your colleagues, you think about that opportunity to do that review for them. So talking to your registrar about how those reviews might be done if it's an inherited patient. So sometimes they may come from other practices or from colleagues that have retired. It's important to know why they've left the other practice. Was it around aggressive behaviour or aberrant behaviours? Was another practitioner told that they weren't allowed to prescribe opioids or S8s anymore because of different prescribing practices that they've been put under observation from APRA? So these are things that are important to sort of understand the background as to why the person's coming to see you. If it's a long-term patient of the practice, but they're starting to get worsening pain, this is the opportunity to start setting expectations early about what they can expect from you. Talking to the registrar about how to take a pain history, red flags are all very important. At this point, further investigation is required and referral may be indicated. So that's something that's important to talk to people about from the beginning. I think though sometimes yellow flags aren't as well understood and yellow flags are things that we know indicate an increased risk of long-term distress for the patient, but also ongoing and persistent disability and the risk of transferring over to substance use or opioid use disorders. So yellow flags really focus around psychological distress. With that, we're talking about support. So is the workplace supportive if someone's on work cover? Do they have family and social supports? What are their current stressors? Looking at patients' attitudes and beliefs, some people feel that they expect to be pain-free before they can go back to doing their activities. They believe that the pain is harmful. 
Others might be expecting effects and wanting you to give them something that's going to make the pain go away. Looking at past behaviours, so is the patient giving a sort of passive approach to rehab? Are they doing lots of rest and avoiding all of their normal and usual activities? And then, of course, are there any signs of affect, dysregulation, emotional problems, poor sleep, that kind of thing? How do we manage or measure yellow flags? So taking a good history is a start. With all of that information, you should be able to get a lot of that out of your history. But if we're looking at the K10 or the DAS21 scales that we should be familiar with, there is also an Oribro musculoskeletal pain screening questionnaire, and that's a very good predictor of long-term disability and or failure to return to work. So, for example, question nine is... An increase in pain is an indication that I should stop what I'm doing until the pain decreases. So you can imagine that patients who strongly agree on that comment are going to be high risk of having ongoing distress. That Orobro questionnaire is available on the ACI website. And if the registrars are talking about seeing patients that have got a lot of these yellow flags, then really psychological support patient self-management and encouraging active engagement in their own care is going to be paramount. There's a lot of great resources around to help with psychological support. So again, that ACI website, This Way Up, is an online CBT program. They've actually got a chronic pain program. The MPS, while it's still around and hasn't been defunded quite yet, have got a great section on chronic pain for consumers. The Hunter Pain Service Brain Man, there's a couple of little five-minute videos that are really good plain language around what chronic pain is and how we might approach it. If the registrar presents a person or a patient or a topic to you in a situation where they've taken a great history and they're not sure what to do next, I guess we need to get them to start thinking about what are the things that could help. We know that the sole use of pharmacological treatments has limited success in chronic pain. So they might be considering pain interventions. So interventions are things like a steroid injection or a nerve ablation, surgical joint replacements or joint fusions. When you're looking at neuropathic pain, there's a huge range of pharmacotherapies that aren't opioids. But of course, with all of these things, moving and physio and keeping the person active is really important. If there's a mood disturbance, then thinking it really along that yellow flag line and looking at the counselling and education We do recognise now that there is probably a third type of pain. So we're hopefully familiar with nociceptive and neuropathic pains, but there is thought to be a new classification of pain, which is called nociceptive pain. So that's persisting pain in the absence of obvious tissue or nerve damage. And it's thought to arise from sensitisation of the other pathways. And examples would be conditions like fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, undifferentiated pelvic pain, and those chronic regional pain syndromes. So they're all things where the mental health and the yellow flag part becomes very important. And it could guide the choice of therapy that you use. So again, lots of options that don't include opioids.
I think that registrars and probably all of us GPs like to provide something practical to patients, something that we can sit down with them and give them a tool that they can use. I just like to talk about pacing because I think it's a great example of this. So we know that people sometimes reduce activity because of pain and then others push through pain and probably overdo activity. So it can set up a unhelpful cycle of rest and overactivity. Pacing is really about planned physical activity and doing a little bit often. So you can actually sit down with the patient, work out what their baseline tolerance is by asking, for example, how far can you walk before your pain increases significantly? Then we reduce that by about 20% and we use that as their regular daily program. They may do that once a day or twice a day, and then that gets increased by 10% a week. When we increase it, it can be the distance that's increased, it can be the speed or the number of repetitions, but it's important to keep a record of this in a pain or a pacing diary. And again, the ACI website has got examples of pain and pacing diaries. It's also got a pacing handout that you can print off and give to patients. If you've worked through the case and it sounds like that we're considering opioids, the registrar has hopefully used other things in their pain management plan. So we're not using opioids on their own, but it is important to consider thinking about the authorities that we spoke about earlier, but also driving, something that sometimes we forget to mention. It is really recommended to not drive when you commence a patient on opioids or after you increase or change the dose. And that could be for up to a week after a dose change or increase. And of course, at any time that the patient feels sedated. So it's important to make sure that you have those discussions and you document those discussions. So a pain assessment Everyone sort of knows about scoring the pain from 1 to 10 or 0 to 10, but we really need to do probably some more comprehensive pain assessments, particularly at baseline if we're thinking about starting opioids. We need to have some marker to measure whether things have improved. The brief pain inventory, that one's quite good to do at the start of treatment. And possibly you might repeat it after the first month or two, and then maybe every six to 12 months, it might form part of the 12-month review. And of course, not to forget that yellow flag, Oribro questionnaire, that's also an option. Now, the opioid risk tool, it outlines a set of factors that we know predict risk of aberrant behaviours. And actually quite overwhelmingly, if you score over eight on this particular tool, then your risk of aberrant behaviours is estimated to be 91%. So that's very high. The sort of questions that are asked on this tool, some registrars may need support in asking these difficult questions. Often they don't know the patient as well as you might, and it really highlights the need to have that good relationship to sort of guide your management. I think it's important to keep these factors in mind. So family and personal history of a substance use disorder, any history of trauma or psychological illness. It's important to probably keep these things in the back of your mind when you're doing an assessment. These things may prompt you to look for signs of injecting drug use, as was sort of touched on before. It might trigger a specialist referral. If someone you think is really high risk and you're not comfortable starting opioids on them, you might be referring them quickly, more quickly into a pain or addiction medicine clinic. 
This information might also guide how often you review the patient, whether you choose to use urine drug screens or prescription monitoring services, as an example. It's really important that the registrar understands that before you start an opioid, in particular for chronic pain, you need to have an idea of your treatment duration and goals of treatment. Acute pain is pretty straightforward, but it's also important to make sure that with acute pain, the opioids get stopped quickly. With chronic pain, though, we want to be using the lowest effective dose for the shortest possible duration. Most importantly, with the goals, and I think this is one of the most important things to take away, that rather than just the pain score from zero to 10, our outcomes and goals need to be functional. They need to be around quality of life, the things that are important to the patient. So if they can no longer do the gardening or walk around the block or play with their grandchildren, these are the kind of functional outcomes that we want to be assessing. We've got some really clear maximum dose of oral morphine equivalents where we know that above those doses, the risk of harms from opioids increases significantly. So for healthy adults, we would say between 40 to 60 oral morphine equivalent daily dosage. And for the elderly or frail, really that maximum should be around the 30 morphine equivalent. How do you actually work that out? The Faculty of Pain Medicine has developed, it's actually an app, and it calculates the oral morphine equivalent daily dose. So this is quite helpful if you're switching between opioids or you're trying to rationalise prescribing. Someone might be prescribed multiple different things and you're trying to bring it all together. It also tells you what the oral morphine equivalent daily dose is. And I put in 40 milligrams of oxycodone and it tells me that that's a morphine equivalent of 60 milligrams per day and it gives me other opioids and the equivalent doses. So this is a really helpful tool that everyone should be able to use. Opioid contracts. Again, the ACI website has got a great template on an opioid treatment agreement and it covers all of this. But basically the contract needs to include consent. So the patient needs to consent to be on opioids. You need to have given them all the information about the risks and the benefits of treatment what their obligations or expectations are. So it might be that you need them to be committing to either physiotherapy, attending their review appointments, sticking to the prescribed dose. These are all the, the sort of obligations that will be outlined in that contract. A trial period. So a trial period should really be time limited. It's a trial. So we would usually say something like four weeks, two to four weeks, and it also needs to be dose limited. The contract also outlines the treatment goals that you've discussed with the patient earlier, but also the reasons for ceasing. So if this happened, then we would consider reducing your opioids and marking out all of the aberrant types of behaviours. So no early scripts, no replacement prescriptions, as an example, and stage supply if you think that that's required. Finally, with the ongoing reviews, you may have heard of the five A's. We've now added adequate documentation. So I think that that's really important to support that you have advised patients around the risks of their opioids. And it's really important for registrars to really get used to documenting the important points of the consultation. Particularly if they're increasing the opioid dose, you want to be documenting the rationale for that and making sure that you have really adequate documentation. The rest of the A's are around analgesia, 
activity, so back to the functional goals, adverse effects, aberrant behaviours. So you want to make sure that there hasn't been any dose escalations or signs of substance use. And you want to always be asking about the affect and how is the pain impacting on their mood, their enjoyment of life and their sleep. These are really important things. And this would be for each review. And with the adverse effects, I put hormonal. So some people might not always be aware that things like sexual dysfunction and menstrual irregularities are well-known side effects of opioids. So questions that were submitted that people wanted us to address. One was how do you make an opioid weaning plan? So we'll chat about that. And do you think that some patients will just be on lifelong opioids? And there's sometimes thoughts around that and some pressure to de-prescribe versus your thoughts around that some people just need opioids. And that's quite a valid question and point to be asking. Would you be recommending opioid contracts for all patients, certainly those that registrars are seeing as a baseline routine? Yeah, look, I think it's a good way for the registrars to get into the habit of using the contracts, familiarising themselves with them. Certainly as you become potentially a little bit more experienced, you might be able to... (laughs) This is a trick question because sometimes it's not always obvious which of our patients are going to end up showing aberrant behaviours or misusing their opioid scripts. So I think certainly getting used to the contracts then means that as they go on, they might be using those particular questions as part of their history and documenting anyway. But certainly anyone that you think you're concerned about early on should definitely be having an opioid contract. Yeah, I agree that for registrars, getting them used to it, then the sort of questions and things that you cover in the contract should then become routine for them for the rest of their careers. You've talked about all these resources, requirements, pain assessments, opioid contracts, authorities. How do we do this in a streamlined way so that it doesn't all blow out time-wise, making it difficult to do adequately in general practice? I guess the other side of that is how do we teach registrars all this because it's quite complex and not consume all our teaching time. With these types of patients, I imagine we are having a very longitudinal relationship and you can do these sort of bit by bit. Yeah, that's right. Look, I think certainly in the setting of acute pain, you can give out immediate release opioids if you need to urgently in the setting of acute pain. But if you think about just even the need to get authorities for different things, depending on what you do, and to set out these contracts, it is an ongoing conversation. It's not common that someone comes and they've been fine the last time you saw them, and now all of a sudden they're presenting with chronic pain. So you've usually got time to sort of start leading into the plan and thinking about what you're going to choose and what you're going to use. Certainly, you'll have hopefully already tried things like physio, paracetamol, depending on what it is and depending on the type of pain. So these are longitudinal patients that you follow through, making follow-up long appointments. So I know that for me, the appointment when we're going to start the opioid or when we're going to go through the contract, it's always booked in as a long appointment and they're booked in advance. So these aren't things that should just pop up out of the blue. And the same with the prescriptions. Once someone started, they really need to come in every four weeks, usually for opioids. So you kind of can plan those consults in advance and you can make some time for them. Just think about what situations would you expect the registrar to attempt to reduce opioids? So the registrar has someone coming in to see them, either they've been seeing them regularly or they're reviewing them. 
And there's certain situations where you would expect that a reduction or a taper would at least be discussed and they might bring that to you to discuss it. So we've got, you know, that their pain is actually less, so their pain is reduced or that they're getting side effects. The dose is quite high. If you think that they've got some pain sensitization, so I think that that means that the opioid dose is increasing, but actually their pain is just increasing. So when would we think about tapering opioids? The pain's either isn't improving or it's gone. Function's not improving. They're getting to a high dose. We're starting to see signs of what we think might be an opioid use disorder or some aberrant behaviours. Use of other depressant medications and side effects or significant comorbidities. How do we actually do it? A complete wean may not be feasible for all patients. It depends on really why you're doing it. Is this a forced reduction because you've decided that the harms significantly outweigh the benefits that the patient's having or they've presented with multiple sets of aberrant behaviours and you're actually deciding that you must reduce the opioid versus is it an agreed taper or reduction? Is it that you're using this medication and really it doesn't seem to be doing much for you, so why don't we come off it? You can pause the tapering plan if you need to, so don't feel that actually you have to stick to the plan to the letter if it's not always working. These things are individualised. We do know that any reduction in dose for patients is actually beneficial. Make sure you set expectations about possible withdrawal symptoms and treat those if necessary. Think about a stage supply and also use the tapering time to focus on other self-management strategies. How do we actually taper? So it depends on how long really they've been on the opioids for and how motivated the patient is to come down. So a fast taper would be by reducing weekly and we're looking at sort of 10 to 25% of the dose versus a slow taper where you might reduce that every month. It's important to sort of understand that if someone is on quite a high dose, the first part of the taper is actually easier than the last half of the taper. So you might find that in the beginning, you're reducing, for example, by 10 milligrams a month. And then as the dose gets lower, you might start to reduce by five milligrams and then 2.5. So that's just an example of the sort of tapering plan that you can use. So opioid use disorder, I think, Patients with opioid use disorder are really a heterogeneous group. What are the stats? So we know that 8 to 10% of Australians have used opioids for non-medical purposes over their lifetime. Approximately 20% of those with prescriptions have misused in some way. So whether that's giving a tablet to someone else, taking two tablets when they're only meant to have one, and about a third of those who misuse can't reduce their use. So I'm not going to go through all of the criteria for opioid use disorder. Hopefully they are familiar to you, but aberrant behaviours certainly would start to indicate that the person or the patient has lost control of their use. If you're starting to suspect an opioid use disorder, then the patient may need treatment with opioid agonist therapy. So we're talking about methadone or buprenorphine. 
We're starting to use buprenorphine a lot more for prescription opioid use. It's becoming much more common. And we do know that when we switch people from their high doses of opioids across to buprenorphine, their pains either stays the same or it gets better. And we're also seeing functional outcomes that are improving as well. The half-life of those medications is a lot longer, so it makes treatment a little bit more stable for people. And it's really important, I think, that you're aware of these treatments and you discuss the rationale for these with your registrar. It's really helpful to reduce stigma and reduce barriers for people who need to access this treatment because it is really, really important. Each state will have its own process to accredit doctors for prescribing methadone or buprenorphine. Specialist referrals, when would you refer someone on? hopefully pretty straightforward, they're not responding or other opioid use disorders starting to appear, they've got some complex needs or suicidal ideation, or they're in that high dose category and you're not able to reduce them. It's important to just spend a bit of time chatting about some of these questions from the registrars. They were really concerned about what happens when a patient breaks the contract and how do you manage patients who don't want to reduce or taper. And I think this is a really common problem that everyone sort of thinks about what we do in these situations. So in terms of breaking contract, I would be asking in what way, how often, and why was the contract broken? It's essential for us to find out the underlying motivation that leads to these behaviours. We need to be careful that we're not refusing care for vulnerable patients. If we think substance use disorder is possible, then having that ongoing referral. You might need to revisit and change the contract. You might need to introduce stage supply. You may need to do more frequent reviews. You may need to check your prescription monitoring service. Worst case scenario, sometimes you just need to hand over care. Your contract should have in it what happens in case of the contract being broken or not working. So if people don't want to reduce or taper their medications, it comes back to that whether this is a shared decision made with the patient or whether it's more of an enforced decision on your part. What are the risks? You might negotiate smaller decreases or making the taper a little bit slower. This might be when you get a specialist opinion in. It's helpful sometimes to share some of the decision-making responsibility. It's really important that registrars have to only work within what they're comfortable with. You might propose to a patient a weaning plan or say, look, you know, I'm really not happy to be, I'm not comfortable to prescribe higher than this dose. And you give them a target to what dose you're happy to aim for. Make sure that you decide what you can offer, offer them some choices and always frame it in a way that you believe that it's the best and safest treatment option. Patients may try and find another GP, but you always make to make sure that they know that the door's open. We really talk about an open door policy. It might be a year or two down the track where they realise that they're actually now ready to address their opioid use and you might find that they come back. If you do end up in a position where you find that you need to stop prescribing suddenly or the patient's not happy with what you've proposed and they've decided that they don't want to be seeing you anymore or coming back, then you need to make sure that you have a bit of a safety net plan, warn them about the withdrawal symptoms. And it might be that actually you direct them to the local emergency department if they become too unwell. 
The last question I think is quite interesting. What are some strategies you use to avoid losing the patient to another GP who is more likely to give opioids? If the patient chooses to go see someone else, that's okay, but just make sure that they know that you're someone who they could come back to when they're ready to address what's happening. It's really important that patients have that respectful relationship with their GP and they need to trust that you're doing the right thing for them. So that sort of relationship will only build up over time. I would warn against fragmenting care. So saying, well, I'll look after your diabetes, but someone else can look after your opioids, especially if they're not allowing you to liaise with the other prescriber. But I think the important thing is to make sure that all of the discussions that the registrars have with patients are discussed as an expression of concern about their safety and well-being. All care and communication should be respectful and, of course, non-judgmental is always a key in these scenarios. It's fact of life that practising good medicine means that you lose a few patients and I think that's so important to practice in a way that patients almost grudgingly respect us. They may not like us for it, but I think we can't just want to be liked and may need to make some tough calls. Yeah, and that's often hard for registrars who are starting out, isn't it? That's something that you learn as you go along. Patients definitely sort of self-select different doctors based on different things, so it's, it's a very common thing that happens. Some of the questions that came through that supervisors that you guys were asking about and I think it's important to think about how we might minimise dependence or side effects, manage the inherited patient. I think with the inherited patient, the important thing here is always set your boundaries early. Just be really clear from the very beginning about what you are prepared to do and what you aren't prepared to do. Utilising external restrictions, the guidelines have changed, things that are out of your control sometimes can be a way out in difficult circumstances. Motivating patients, that's always tricky. I'm, as an addiction specialist, like to go back to the sort of stages of change model. It's really important to make sure that the intervention that the registrar provides is based on the stage of change the patient is at. So if they're just not even contemplating the idea of doing any exercise, giving them a physio referral is probably not going to be successful. So tailoring your intervention based on the stage of change that the patient's at. And I don't know if anyone's heard of this, but take a note of moving medicine. It's a way of helping doctors have good quality conversations about exercise and physical activity. I found that quite helpful in some circumstances. Just quickly take home naloxone. So naloxone is a opioid antagonist which reverses overdose. It's available as either a pre-filled syringe or a nasal spray. In some states, so I think New South Wales, South Australia and Western Australia, there's a pilot around. So some pharmacies have it available free of charge, but otherwise it is now an S3 medication. So it can be bought over the counter or with a PBS script. Who would you suggest that the registrar prescribes naloxone for? So anyone on those higher doses or with significant comorbidities, if they are using other sedatives, whether they're prescribed or things like alcohol, and if they've got any history of overdose or near overdose. So this might be a patient that you have that you know is injecting heroin and you're not actually prescribing them opioids, but obviously take-home naloxone is something that you should be giving them. And why is this important? Because 
Over a thousand deaths in Australians were opioid induced deaths, and 85% of them were accidental. So, real time prescription monitoring, I just want to touch on this because I think most of the other states have already had real time prescription monitoring in some form or another. New South Wales is getting safe script. It's already been rolled out in the Hunter New England area, and the rest of New South Wales, it is coming probably this month. It's going to start. It's going to be integrated into practice software. Patients can't withhold consent. And what makes this a little bit different to the prescription monitoring service is one, that it's in real time, but two, it also includes private prescriptions and some of the other medications like quetiapine, pregabalin and other things. It comes with a clinical advice line, so that will be handy once it kicks off a few little scenarios and then thinking about what are the sort of questions that we want the registrar to be thinking about. So the registrar comes to you, she says, look, I want to talk about a case. I've got this woman, Carol, she's 76. She's a smoker with COPD. She's got some lung nodules already and having annual monitoring for those. She's basically got some chronic neck pain, which is due to severe cervical spine arthritis. And up until now, she's been on Panadol for that with some effect. She's also on some puffers for her chest. She lives with her daughter, who is a nurse, and two grandsons. She is a long-term patient of the practice. So you know Carol quite well. She presents with her daughter. So her daughter's coming with her concerned over her gradual reduction in function and increasing pain. She's getting a bit of pain sometimes going out to her shoulder and she's starting to get quite irritable. You know, Carol, she's always been quite a happy, fun lady. So she reports on history, your registrar tells you that Carol is no longer able to garden or play cards. She can't hang out the clothes or swim in the family pool. So the registrar is kind of a little bit stumped on what they should do with Carol. What are some of the things that you want to be prompting the registrar to be thinking about? So physio, hydrotherapy, investigating with an MRI. There's possibly some radiating pain to the shoulder, so thinking whether there's something happening in the cervical spine. She's got some very clear functional impairments here, so you'd be wanting to look at those as being her goals. So you want the registrar to be thinking about that radiating radiculopathy pain. So for me, I think the main points from this case are really about what do we do first? Are there any red flags? So I think that she's got a high risk of malignancy. She's also got this fairly new symptom of it radiating to the shoulder. So I think some imaging would be warranted. She's also got quite severe respiratory disease, so you would be very careful around using anything that would cause respiratory depression. So we did actually image Carol, and she came back with quite severe cervical spine OA at multiple levels with lots of osteophytes and possible nerve impingement at C4-5. However, she didn't want any surgical intervention, and she probably wouldn't have been suitable for it at this point. So talking to the registrar then about what your options are, we've already sort of mentioned a few of those. Certainly she could have a steroid injection at that site, physio, Lyrica, NSAIDs. Obviously for Carol, we wouldn't want her to be on them long-term. She's relatively elderly and she's also got a history of gourd. So if you gave her short-term non-steroidals, you would consider PPI cover. The other thing with Carol is to think about 
her chest and her respiratory symptoms. So Carol was actually name changed, but she was one of my patients. So I actually started her on a very low dose buprenorphine patch and she had a respiratory review. So the respiratory physician actually gave me an idea of what he thought he supported the use of buprenorphine. So buprenorphine is less of a full agonist. So that was what we decided to use in her. But it was actually helpful that her daughter came with her. She was helpful in monitoring her. So we knew that she wasn't going home on her own. It's really hard with elderly patients starting medications when they're going home on their own. And of course, she had physio and all of those things. The next one was just a woman called Helen. Helen's main issue was that she had post-hepatic neuralgia and it was in her T4 dermatome. She was new to the practice and it was confirmed that her old GP had retired and she'd been prescribed Panadine Fort for that about four years ago and had been on maximum doses of Panadine Fort for four years and didn't feel it was working anymore. Helen also had some yellow flags. So she was currently separating from her husband. She had quite a stressful job. She had a history of postnatal depression and some irritable bowel, which is one of those nosoplastic syndromes that we spoke about. So really the thing about Helen was to get the registrars to sort of work out that panadine fort or codeine wasn't really the recommended first-line treatment in terms of pharmacotherapy. And she did actually start a SNRI. So we spoke a little bit about whether you choose a TCA or tricyclic, so something like amitriptyline versus using something like duloxetine. And for me, it really comes down to whether there's an issue around sleep or whether there's an issue with the mood, with lack of energy and things. And for me, they work quite similarly, but you choose one over the other based on that. She actually went on to have a radiofrequency ablation. So that was an interesting one. So really the key here, though, is to notice that we need to stop the codeine and we reduced it and we spoke about how we might reduce the codeine while starting. We did a bit of a cross taper. Just to provide some more resources, RACGP have got a very comprehensive lot of booklets on prescribing drugs of dependence. If you're in New South Wales, there's a 24-hour support line for drug and alcohol specialist advisory service. You can call that 24-7. And I think most states have a similar type of support number. The Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare just last week announced a new clinical care standard. And it's really going to look at how hospitals send people home on opioids. So that should really make some difference to what we're seeing on people being discharged from hospital, which will make our lives quite a lot easier. Marisa, thanks so much. Fabulous presentation. Really, really interesting and important and you covered a lot of ground. Thank you. Thanks all. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervisors Australia on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervisors Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Programme.